Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. I'm here today talking to Dr. Stephen Spencer. He's a child and adolescent mental health nurse and has worked in acute mental health inpatient unit and emergency departments providing care for young people and families for over a decade. He's also the co-founder of a charity and not-for-profit organisation, Equienergy Youth. He and his team have the goal to build the capacity of adults in the community to support young people through episodes of acute distress and make an impact on mental health outcomes, including youth suicide. So welcome, Stephen, and thank you so much for being here. I've got to say, before I start, (laughs) I have a very selfish and personal reason for having you on here because my youngest daughter is year 12 and one of the boys in her year committed suicide a few weeks ago and we're kind of dealing with the fallout from that and when I saw what you did it was like yeah perfect because it's been interesting watching how the kids deal with it their responses the guilt and the all the what ifs and the why am I still here and then the other thing is why is there such or there seems to be such a feeling of what's the point among teenagers in particular? What's the point of them being here? So I've dumped all that on you. Welcome. Um, yeah, and, I'm, and firstly, what I will say is, Karen, thanks for having me on your program and on your podcast. Uh, the first thing I absolutely want to say is I'm really sorry to hear that your daughter and your community and you know the family of that young person, it is youth suicide is, is, is tragic and it absolutely impacts on families and, and communities and we need to do everything we can to you know, try and you know, prevent that and support young people and yeah, I'm hoping we can talk through all of that and more today. Great, great. Thank you. Yeah, because I'm left feeling, what do you say to some, what do you say to the friends of that child? You know, he was 17 and the kids, his mates knew there was something wrong, but they didn't know what was wrong. And then... Yeah, it can be really hard. And, and I guess in, you know, difficult times, you know, including... You know, events as like you've described, often, you know, it can has a big impact on communities and but it also brings people together. The fact that the young people all have each other and then it's our job as the adults in the village to wrap around them, keep an eye on and, and keep those communication doors open. I guess the one thing we always say to families and important adults in children's villages, um, you know, the young person and, you know, looking for any changes in in their behaviour or anything that sort of deviates from what you know of them is just is the opportunity just to, you know, check in on them and and just keep those doors open and support them that way. So how did you end up doing what you're doing? Because you started off as a nurse, didn't you? And then you kind of worked your way. So I'm I'm trying to get a bit of background here so we can understand where you're coming from. Absolutely. I I will say that probably I wasn't the best student at school. I guess I did a whole number of jobs as an early adult, young dad, and got married pretty early at 23 and 
didn't really have a career or any of those formal qualifications or anything. And it was actually the birth of my daughter. I've got a year 12 daughter at the moment too, 17 and a half. So when she was born, the first midwife was actually a, a man who um, helped birth my daughter. So we, our midman, he was an absolute legend and um, helped my wife, Emma and I. I think at the time I was, you know, I didn't have formal qualifications, got this family and this responsibility and my frontal lobe probably would, had finished growing. We're a bit slower for the bloke. So I thought, oh, geez, I better do something to, you know, to, to do this. And I thought, oh, I like people. Probably the only subject at school I did okay in was biology and health. And I thought, oh, I might see how this nursing caper goes. And I was really fortunate. I got a trainee enrolled nursing opportunity to be hospital trained. And I did a year's training at Morissette Hospital in New South Wales. So, you know, it was a you know, very big psychiatric uh, institution in its day and um, I was fortunate to work in a psychiatric rehabilitation service there where we worked longer term with people to you know help them get back into the community after you know living with and you know enduring mental illness. I did my traineeship and I was as green as anything and really didn't know what I was doing but I did enjoy it and I love the people and the grounds of the you know in the Lake Macquarie it was beautiful but I suppose I then got a job on the same site uh, working in the forensic mental health unit there so um, that was 30 men aged 18 to 65 who committed a crime through reasons of mental illness and required long-term you know hospitalization in a really secure environment or they were those gentlemen who presented to acute mental health services and because of their psychiatric or mental health symptoms they posed a significant risk to the community and so under the mental health act they were being hospitalized um, for treatment and I worked there for five years and I learned a lot from you know amazing you know psychiatric nurses at the time who you know been doing that job longer than I'd been on the planet so I had amazing mentors around me and one of the things I noticed working in that environment with the men in that space was their really early formative years were you know, lots of challenges, you know, developmental and complex trauma and lots and lots of challenges, you know, um, parental challenges and just, you know, life, I suppose. And so I decided when I, I was doing my registered nursing degree and at the end of that, I thought I'm going to go and work with young people. And since then, I've been working in acute mental health unit for young people, you know, um, in emergency departments, conducting assessments for young people and families when they present in crisis. Yeah, you know, I work as a clinical nurse consultant and I completed a PhD really to try and... Uh, looking at the best responses and interventions. And the reason for that is I, I wanted to improve my own practice in, in acute mental health inpatient units. There's a lot of work that's been done on reducing coercive interventions, such as physical restraint, chemical sedation and seclusion. I guess in working with young people, you know, using those interventions, they're not helpful in the community and they're not, they're traumatizing there, but there is no training or anything for the other large part of the work we do. So um, I did a PhD and I thought, what else can we do? And that was to improve my practice, to help, you know, the team that I work in to provide safer care for young people and families. And the best thing, I never really knew where it would take me, but I've been really fortunate myself and two of my lifelong friends who have their own careers in business and things have come along and we've started Equinergy Youth as a charity not-for-profit. And our goal is to take the clinical experience and the conceptual models from my thesis out and try and build that capacity in the really important people, the parents, families, teachers, and the non-clinical staff that really support. I guess the best way to describe it is for a young person, for example, who receives um, mental health support in the community, maybe they go to a private psychologist or a CAMS team, they spend one hour a week with that clinician working on psychological therapy, 
but it's the other 167 hours of the week with the village that needs to support the episodes of distress for those outcomes to be to you know for the good outcomes for the therapy. If the assist the village around the child, you know, if that child's experiencing intense and frequent episodes of distress, then we won't get the outcomes we need to see. So we really want to build that capacity in the village to so because it's everyone's responsibility to come together and, and improve mental health for young people and you know, some of those really, you know, not very nice stories like you mentioned at the start of this. There's two things that were coming up for me during that. The first one is how much of an impact does it have that as a society, if somebody is upset or grieving, we tend to go, oh, do you want to be alone while you do that? It's kind of not something that is acceptable out in the open to show grief in our society. And then the other thing is, in teenage years, you've got the double whammy of teenagers are trying to stand on their own two feet and they want to break their ties with their parents and prove that they're, you know, they can do this themselves. You've kind of got this double whammy of, because I remember, but when I was in junior school, so I've been about nine, and one of the boys in my class, his mum had been killed. And I remember the teacher coming in, getting the boy. But then it was, I don't know how I remember this, but it was like, oh, do you want to give me five minutes? I'll leave you in my office for five minutes while you have a think about this. It's like, that's what we do. I mean, that was a long time ago, but I don't think it's much different now. I guess to speak to that, Karen, um, I guess one, one of the things, obviously, with if a person has a physical health condition, we, you know, if we see a broken, you know, cast or a physical health, essentially, though, when it comes to psychological distress or feelings or grief or uh, mental health, it's, you can't see it. So mm-hmm. it's people then fear, you know, unpredictability and all of those things. And I guess this is stigma in action, really. Um, I think we don't know, I don't think we open and, I guess there's more acceptance around physical health than than mental health for a whole you know range of reasons which we can think of. And I, I, the biggest thing that sort of comes through is I think when a person is in psychological distress, whether it's driven by the symptoms of a mental health condition or grief and loss or interpersonal conflict or whatever it is, I think people are just fearful and afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? The amount of times I've had and adults say to me, what if I say the wrong thing or hey, what, what if I make it worse? And really what we're doing with our programs is really helping people know what to say and, and just how to be there with somebody. Sometimes, do you know what, most of the times when I'm working with young people in the middle of the night, they might be experiencing the symptoms of depression, which include poor sleep and sleep disturbance. They're awake for hours. That sense of hope isn't there. There's not a whole lot I can say sitting in a hospital away from their natural community that's going to make anything better in that moment. But sometimes I just say, you know what, I'm going to sit here, you're not alone, and when you're ready, tell me what's happening for you. There's not, a, you know, so sometimes just being there and just slowing everything down is can be really helpful. And I often find young people have all the solutions to the problems. we just got to give them enough space and be there long enough for them to help them process it and help them find it. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? Because as parents and humans, we want to fix things. We want everything to be right, right now. (laughs) Yeah, we talk about the fix-it training for parents and and for professionals as well. And I don't know about you, but, you know, when I'm upset or distressed, someone comes in and tells me what I need to do. Uh, generally that doesn't go so well and it's funny how we we often say to young people through our actions and our words we expect more from them than what we can actually do as adults remembering they are still on the production line of frontal lobes and we're you know action consequence and impulse control and they've still got to live those the only way we get those synapses is through lived experience 
and time, you know. So, and I guess you that, that comes back to the point you made before around you were talking about obviously the development of children and how we, you know, move through the stages of infancy and toddlers and childhood and they get to those beautiful teenage, adolescent age and we have early adolescence where we're slow, trying to let the line go a little bit further all the time and build autonomy and independence. We get to middle adolescence where we confuse all children and um, we tell them what to grow up and act their age and do as they're told. And, you know, we're, we're giving them mixed messages and they're also having that internal mixed message of being individual and move away from the family of origin beliefs and who am I? But at the same time, I need to belong to the group because it's not safe if I don't. So they've got this internal, external, and you know, and, and not to mention the uh, significant um, activity at neurodevelopmental level in that period of the lifespan. And then they get to a big transition point coming up to that thing called adulthood and it's our job as adults in the village to prepare young people for adulthood and that's and really you know the things one of in my opinion the best developmental task that we can support children for is building coping and resilience and the positive ways of seeking help because from that they'll again then be able to learn or whatever it is that they want to chase their dreams on if we can get them to belong to a group you know loneliness and isolation is not helpful and if we can have them chasing a dream with enough coping and resilience, they'll just go after it. You keep talking about a village because we tend to think of ourselves these days, could be wrong, but might not be, as like the family unit. We're responsible for our family unit and we're not responsible for anything else. And particularly over the last 20 years where you can get in trouble for doing anything to anybody else's children, disciplining them or even cuddling them or what, whatever. That has taken a lot, because I remember, I, I grew up in a small village and I remember it drove me insane because I couldn't go anywhere without my mum and dad finding out, right? It was very helpful in previous, absolutely. That's a protective factor that children yeah. today just do not have, you know. They don't have. And how much of a negative impact, and oh, this is a very subjective question, but how much of a negative impact do you think that is having on? I, I guess what I will say to that is, and I'm an idealist and a realist, so I have, you know, I put on both of those hats. But I guess one of the things from my observations in the time I've worked with young peoples and families and, you know, we're engaging with schools and other organisations in this space is, and obviously my own experience of growing up, and is that young people's social world has changed significantly. Obviously, there is technology and social media, which is really important. We know that a child who can be connected to hundreds or thousands of people online does not get enough of the neurotransmitters to say you've had a social interaction. You have to actually be face-to-face. Face-to-face social engagement with other people, adults and other children has decreased because of availability of those people and busy, hectic lives and the way contemporary society has moved. You know, know, not as much time in nature and all those things potentially, but also um, with the online. And we learn really crucial social development skills that young people are not getting that previous generations did. So, you know, that's, that's why young people can be you know, connected in the cyber world, but be very lonely because they, and I, so we purposely use the village because I think we need to swing back a little bit more. You know, we're very, you know, you, you talked about, you know, working with, we should all, you know, child protection and all those things are very important, but what's also important, and I, sometimes I think we don't get the balance there is what is very important is children need to know that there is a village around them. One of the things a child can't do is conceptualise that there are lots of people thinking about them unless they're in the room. One of the things I notice in an, when I work in the inpatient unit is children come into hospital potentially after making a, you know, an attempt on their life or a really high episode of distress, self-harm behaviour or something like that. 
And all of a sudden, these adults turn up and are trying to work out how to help them. And they go, oh, look at all these adults. But they didn't think of that when they're in the community in distress because they're not able to think, oh, look at all, you know, you can be thinking about your teenage child, but they don't necessarily think you're thinking about them. So that's something, you know, we've got to show them, demonstrate that to them all the time. And that's how we do it by showing them there's lots of adults around. I didn't realise that because I can see that's a missing in teenagers, that they don't think they've got anybody other than their parents. Not even for most kids, aunties or grandparents. It's literally just the parents. And But that is actually so important, is it? Extended family and there is a lot of research and positive impacts of non-parental role models in teenagehood. Children generally aren't going to go and tell their parents the tough questions. But if they've got a non-parental role model who's, you know, trusted by the family and it can be that person that they can go to with the things they might not want to be able to talk to with their parents, we've specifically and purposefully done that for our own children. And my daughter has jokes about her bestie, you know, which is the same, which is my wife's friend, you know, and we've purposely put those people. And I'd like to think that I do that for a number of my friends' children as well as, and really, you know, it is significant, really important. It's really important as well for, you know, especially because family structures have changed over the years. We really need to support all families, you know, no matter what they look like. So it's really important to, um, we all need to help each other to help the kids. I was, where my brain's gone with this, like you said, extrapolating things is, is like, particularly in the school system, because I know when we grew up, if the te- if you got a, a, a note off the teacher that you had to take home to say you've been a rat bag in the class, you got it off your parents. Yeah. But that's different now. If a teacher, most often, if a teacher tries to say the kid has done something or isn't doing something or whatever, the parents tend to defend the child. So the child feels, does the child feel that lack, that there is nobody outside? It's just that, is that, does that contribute to it? I suppose that's where I'm going with that question. I guess one of the things that I think that type of, that instills in a young person is, I think we have moved towards for a long time. And the reason I believe coping resilience skills aren't as developed nowadays as they once were for children is we smooth the path for them. We don't want them to experience disappointment, distress, frustration, any of the, you know, there's term, you know, lots of terminology, helicoptering and all those things. Essentially what happens in it and you know, if you, if you go to a restaurant and you've got a two-year-old toddler sitting there and they start to express any form of distress, make a noise, they're sort of managing, but they're being a bit loud. What's the first thing we often do is we give them a device and try and dampen it down. Oh, don't feel that. Don't feel that. And we sort of keep moving as the child gets older, more mobile, more socially and emotionally and cognitively complex. We try and protect our children too much, I think, at times. Um, there are times probably where we need to protect them more for some children. We need to really find that balance. But I don't think, I think uh, every time a child experiences those not so nice feelings and the thoughts that go with it and the experiences of life, and they dig into their toolkit of coping resilience and manage it themselves, they get, they build up their coping and resilience. And that's the autonomy and the self, you know, that's where self discipline and self emotional regulation occurs. But if we don't give, if we come in and rob a child of an opportunity to build those mind muscles called coping and resilience because of our own distress or what it means to us, we're actually doing them a disservice. And if you do that from a very young age, often what you'll have is I'll be working with a child who's 15, 16 years old, whose levels of anxiety are so high that they don't have the toolkit to manage the stresses that life have. 
So it's kind of the equivalent going back again to what you said earlier. We take care of their physical well-being. We make sure they develop hand-eye coordination and ball skills and climbing skills, whatever else. But we don't do the same thing for their mental abilities and emotional abilities. It's that hidden thing, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. We, what we, um, I guess, what we're trying to do is, you know, just help parents and other professionals who work with, you know, who it's a privilege to work with other people's children, and so as a professional, so, um, you know, it's our job to all contribute to the child to help them to develop those skills and, you know, and, and become the person that they, that individual that that they are. So how do we do it? So if, if you've got a teenager that is depressed, anxious, feeling hopeless, even self-harming. As parents, what can we do to support them? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is if you have a child where you believe there is a um, the symptoms of a mental health condition. So I guess one of the things we first talk about in our program with parents especially is that we all have a level of mental health. Mental health is just one of the subdomains, physical health, mental health, social, spiritual, all of those, you know, they're subdomains of our global level of health. I think if we probably polled, you know, 100 or 1,000 Australians and we said, you know, what does mental health mean to you? We probably think illness and disability. It's also wellness and at the prevention level, primary prevention level. So I think we skew towards risk aversion and mental health. We, I think we, the terminology around mental health immediately makes us think of disease and illness. One of the things we try and talk to people about is mental health, everyone has it and it's everyone's business. There are mental health illnesses and disorders that have set symptom profiles like diabetes. You know, sometimes I like ice cream and my blood sugar goes up. That doesn't mean I have diabetes. I sometimes, yeah, go for a swim and get out of breath, but doesn't mean I have asthma. You know what I mean? They, They are two different things. And that's what we, and then the last thing that we try and say is whether a young person or any of us have a mental illness or disorder or not, we all experience psychological distress because it's part of the human experience, you know, getting upset, you know, flipping your lid and all that sort of stuff. When you, you know, I'm sure if I said the wrong, your husband came in or, you know, someone loved you today came in and said that thing that annoyed you, you know, you'd get upset. And that's just a normal, natural thing to do. So we really do want to differentiate that. And so if we're working with, you know, just the general population, what we want to try and do is support young people's coping and resilience skills and identify the point at which they can't cope anymore. And then we engage with them and support them. And then once they're doing okay, we can then disengage and let them be. The last thing we want to do is hover over them then because they usually tell us to, I'm fine now, go away, you know, and so they've come back down, but we're still resonating up pretty high because, it, you know, it is challenging to work with young people, any person in distress, you know, for fear and all those things. The other thing I guess that I would talk to is for any parent out there or working who has a child and they believe there is a mental health disorder, you know, obviously professionals who can provide assessment and treatment, you know, is absolutely really important. And, you know, having those health services and other services around to help you with your role as the parent or family is really important. So if we have a child who has, let's say they are living with depression and they're receiving, you know, going to a private psychologist or something like that and getting treatment, what parents can do is, what they can do is help the school to do this as well. When families and schools come together, we get the best outcomes. So when we have consistency across all different settings for a child, where they know that the adults around them can support them if they get distressed. So even working in an acute inpatient unit, I work with young people with a range of 
mental health diagnoses. But whether they I'm working with a child with a depressive illness, a psychotic illness, significant eating disorder, or any of those, it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is. I'm just working on the distress. It's a manifest. Sometimes young people where I work, they get upset, but it's got nothing to do with the symptoms of their illness. Maybe it's because they got a phone call, you know, they didn't get a call from their friend or something like that. So in any moment, all we need to be able to do is identify, is a child coping or not? And what we do is coach people to identify what that is for each individual child they have. You know, they have, you know, you've got a number of children, you'd be able to tell me what they look like and, and what are the signs when they're coping, which is when you give them the space and keep an eye on them. And then as soon as they shift in any moment, to not being able to cope, how you connect with them and, and then guide them back to a space where they are coping again. And if we're able to do that over and over again, what we'll do is we'll reduce the impacts of psychological distress, you know, cortisol and adrenaline on, you know, developing brains, it's a toxin, and we'll build up those coping and resilience, which hopefully then will prevent many of the mental illnesses and disorders. It's kind of like, I, I like analogies, you have to excuse me. It's oh. kind of like we are focused and educated in physical illnesses, physical accidents. But when it comes to mental and emotional stuff, it's either you're well or you're sick. Absolutely. So, and I guess I really want to reiterate. So what, I guess to talk to that, many of us across the country will have been given a framework to use if we are in the street or in our workplace or in our home and there is a physical health crisis, many of us will call on the Dr. ABC principles. If you've never had to provide CPR to someone, at least you've had some training and a framework in the moment where you and the people around you can try and stay as calm as possible. You don't have to communicate as much because we all know what each other are doing and you can try and get the best outcome possible. That increases the outcome for the, you know, when, when there's responders there who are calm and go through process and all know what each other doing, the likelihood of a good outcome is increased as opposed to if there were no people trained in CPR, Dr. ABC. I guess what came from the um, research that I conducted was that we've, from the two conceptual models we have, the TAR3 framework is essentially the psychological first aid framework, which is the equivalent of Dr. ABC for psychological distress. So we are coaching, it is our goal at Equine Energy Youth to get TAR3 in the minds of every adult in the country to support young people uh, around psychological distress. And what is it? What is TAR3? Yeah, so the, the first is just around the triggers, different types of triggers. And essentially, these are just the things, you know, as the child's on their you know, roller coaster of life, there are things that come up that will start an episode of distress. Yeah, and those triggers will occur in a context wherever that child is in time, place and space, you know, at home, in their, at school or at a friend's house or in public, wherever they are in the physical environment and everything that's happening, you know, in our complex world one of those, one or a combination of those triggers will start an episode of distress. What the child, the A is for actions. So what the child will do, either consciously or subconsciously, they will dig into their toolkit that they've already got, that we've been helping them develop and try and cope with it using their distraction, sensory or mindfulness strategies that we've been you know, building since toddlership. So they try and do that. If they're able to do that themselves, they build their own coping resilience. And children across the country do that every day. I was at work yesterday in the hospital. There would have been a child do that and no adult knew about it. And that would have, you know, that happens every day in every setting across the country where children are building coping resilience. However, if a child gets triggered 
and either consciously or subconsciously digs into that toolkit and they don't have the tool they need. You know, they need a digger, but they've only got a shovel or the triggering event is so intense that the toolkit didn't even stand a chance. They'll do a different set of actions. And those actions are help-seeking. You know, we probably know them better if we had our stigmatising hat on as attention-seeking behaviour or something like that. Every child who seeks attention is keeping themselves safe. But help-seeking actions are those that adults find frustrating, annoying, scary. What they're essentially doing is the child is not coping psychologically. It's like if we're at the beach, talk about analogies, if we're at the beach and we went off a sandbank and we were starting to not cope physically, we'd put our hand up and wave to someone, to a lifeguard to come and help us. Essentially, when a child moves to help-seeking actions, it's a rare child who walks up and says, excuse me, Steve, can you please help me? Because I've got these really intrusive suicidal thoughts and my friends aren't talking to me. They, they generally don't do that. What they do is they shut down or they become reactive. And so a child will move to a different set of actions that will indicate I'm psychologically drowning. And so the R is, for the, is the first part of the adult is to respond to that. So we recognise a child has moved from coping to not coping. They're help-seeking in unhelpful ways, annoying, you know, frustrating, all those things. What we then do is we respond to that. Our response is what we say and do to make a connection with the child in that moment. We just do our best. Good old attachment theory says you've got to be good enough, just good enough. And I've got a big foot and a big mouth and I don't always get it right. And, you know, you, and I always say to adults, you can never say the wrong thing with good intention. So what we do is we just try and use our body language, our tone, our proximity, I'm a fairly big unit, so I get down low and try and get eye to eye and all that. And I just, all I'm trying to do is use who I am, my th- what we call therapeutic use of self, to connect with the child. And I, you know, it's like throwing out bait. You know, you throw, out, throw it out there and you're trying to get a connection with the child. So that's your response. When we respond to some a child in distress who's not coping, what happens is we immediately start an interaction. So what we get is a reaction, which is the second R in the TAR3. A child, based on your initial response, will either accept you or reject you. They will do something, say something to indicate either the connection's been made, I accept your support. A child can only accept support when I've done a good enough one response and they're in the space to accept it. There are lots of children where I do my gold standard response, but you know what, just in that moment, they're not able to accept it for whatever reason. Think of you know, the child who's feeling hopeless or feel like they're a burden to others, which are actually symptoms of anxiety and depression, for example. If I do my response and I get the opposite reaction, which is rejection, what the child's saying is that connection hasn't been made. Either they're not quite in the space or I didn't quite get it right. Obviously, the more you know the child, the easier it is to do this sometimes. (laughs) So what happens is the child will do something to reject you. They'll ignore you, turn away, run away, tell you to you know, swear at you and make, tell you to make love and travel or do something like that. And so what they do is they're saying, hey, this connection hasn't been made. If I've been rejected by a child and I move straight to fix-it mode and suggest the intervention like sensory mindfulness or distraction technique, which we're trying to guide them to, Without the connection, I've invalidated them. It's like, I don't know if any of you are our listeners, but if you came home from work and said to your partner, I've had a really tough day, and they go, what you need to do is, you know, quit on Monday and do this and this. What we're trying to really say is, oh, that must have been really hard for you. You know, would you like to talk about it some more or something like that? So essentially what happens is if we respond to a child, the first R, and we get a reaction, the second R in TAR3, and we get rejected, we don't want to move to resolution suggesting 
any of those interventions because if we go to fix it mode, we'll escalate the situation. We're saying, really saying to the child, I haven't validated you and I'm not listening. So what we need to do is when we get rejected, we need to push our ego back because remember, we've got a child here who is psychologically drowning. There is no learning that occurs or, you know, they might be using swear words or doing things we don't like, self-harm behavior or aggression or swear words or being kind kind to someone. But if we try, no one's got, no child's going to learn with their lid flipped. You know, you need your lid down to learn anything. And so what we need to do is we push the ego back, we take a big deep breath and we ground ourselves, just like the lifeguards always ground themselves to save us at the beach. And we try again. And sometimes we might get rejected over and over again until eventually either the child accepts us or the distress runs out of steam. And so if a child accepts and we offer the suggestions, send, you know, let's go for a walk, let's play with the dog, let's do some cooking, let's read a book, let's have a warm shower or go for a punch a punching bag or whatever it is that they love to do, you know, help how we do that through the connection we've made once we've been accepted. If we are with a young person who rejects us continually, and this has happened to me thousands of times, they continually reject us and we never make the connection, but they the distress runs out of steam because you can't stay upset forever. What will happen is eventually they won't need you anyway, but they know you're one of those adults who can stick it out with them and be a calm, effective responder. And they're more likely to do the not-so-helpful behaviour in front of you next time because they, they know you're a safe person. How do you create, who are you being when you create that connection with them? Just yourself. Yeah, the only tool we have, you know, if I think of the tool of a mental health nurse, it's that therapeutic use of self, just who you are. Really important things are just being grounded, being authentic and genuine. You know, if you bring that to this space, the hardest part of responding to a child in distress is managing your own distress. If you can manage your own distress and keep your lid down, you will make the best decisions for you and that child and everyone else in the area, especially as the higher the distress, the higher the risk. And if young people are getting experiences where more and more adults in the village are able to work through those moments with them, we're going to instill hope and you know, that hope is the antidote to suicide. We're going to have to finish in a few minutes. I don't want to, but I'd, I'd actually like you to come back on again. I think what you're saying is so important for everybody to hear because it's like as parents, we can handle the sores and the broken arms and the, you know, falling out of a tree and landing in a parrot bush kind of scenario. But the emotional thing is much more difficult for us as parents to cope with. We don't have the tools necessarily to deal with some stroppy teenager who's smashing the bedroom up or, you know. I must say here, it's always easier to nurse other people's children than your own. Okay, so, and because we love, you know, we love our own children a lot, we care about all children, but we love our own. I guess what I'd say to that is what you're describing there, and this is probably most relevant in my line of work for families and parents and carers, who um, have young people who engage in self-harm behaviour. And, and often what we do is, again, I think we're able to keep our logical brains on if we relate it to physical health. So, you know, there are young people who engage in self-harm behaviour and self-harming can be non-suicidal or non-life-threatening. It can also be life-threatening. And there, but there is a big difference between the two. And if, you know, and I guess what we often say to, to families who have young people who engage in self-harm behaviour, like cutting, for example, is if your child fell off their bike and they had a scratch or a brute, you know, and what's the first thing you do when your child falls off the bike? Oh, darling, that must have been really scary. And sometimes you, and the first thing you do is you make an assessment of the wound. Mm. It's a little grey. You go, oh, you'll be right off you go. You know, you yep, okay. 
you've, you've done the assessment and, the, and you've given the child the message that this is all okay, you know, go back and play. If it's a little bit more, it might be, oh, okay, yeah, that that's really hurt. This one probably needs a Band-Aid because there might be a little bit of... If it's hit a major artery or something like that, you absolutely need to, you know, we'd call an ambulance, apply pressure and call an ambulance. We know how to do that as parents. The same thing happens when we work with young people around self-harm. The only difference is the mechanism of injury. And so it, it is scary and, you know, it can be really overwhelming and, and those things. But what we want to do firstly is if we have a young person who's with us in, in the moment and they've either come to us because they have self-harmed or they're doing it, we can see that they are, what we do is we take a big deep breath, ground us, and we respond. We assess the wound. If it's non-life-threatening, we go through the same process for physical first aid, but provide the psychological TAR3 alongside it. If it's life-threatening, we would apply the first aid and call emergency services and all those people out there who are who support families to um, keep children safe. And so we do know how to do this. The hardest part, I said, as I said before, is managing your own distress. And what we do is we get the job done and we keep people safe and we help them. And then later when they're in the space, we can talk to them about it. Or if, if there might be other people in our village who can help talk if they're not able to do it with us. Yeah, it's interesting. I always get cross when I hear news reports, oh, such a body ran out in front of the train and was killed, but the train driver was uninjured. That guy is, or that person is never going to be the same again. It's kind of like we don't place, we just don't understand and we don't have the training. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? It's about giving us training to support. 100%. And one of the really important things and something that we're continually thinking about how we can um, can do this at Equity Energy Youth, and that is safe adults, safe kids. And so if we, you know, if I think of the line of work that I work in, or if you're in emergency services or schools or, and for families and parents as well at different times, you know, the, the vicarious or the actual trauma of some of the experiences, we need to look after each other and work together and come together and look after each other so we can all look after the, the little buddies out there that we you know, are in the village for. Just really briefly, what do you think is the cause behind the kids feeling hopeless? The best answer I can have to say to that is we should ask them. And it will be indifferent for, but I guess in in the work, I work with young people in, you know, the most acute service that, you know, of service delivery for mental health and, you know, emergency departments in an acute inpatient unit. And there are lots of challenges out there for some young people. You know, life can be really challenging and, you know, through experiences and, and all of those things. I think what we do know is that Mission Australia do a Youth of a Nation survey every year. And the most recent one, they list their top five things that they're most worried about. And interestingly, in our uh, parent program, we ask families what they think are the biggest things that contribute to hopelessness, mental health, and, and it's always social media, bullying, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, it goes down in those orders. And interestingly, those things for young people are right down the bottom. What they say is coping with stress. So what they're saying to us there is, Life is stressful and my toolkit's not big enough, which is why we're focusing here on really getting the village to help a child build that experience distress and not shelter them too much but sh- and shelter them when they need it. That's what the TAR3 is about. The next thing they do is they say school and study is the second thing. Uh, body image, off the top of my head, I know there's the top five, body image, family, and I think mental health is in that space. So, you know, that that's 25,000 young people in Australia who've told us what they think's contributing. You know, obviously, we've got things like, you know, obviously, young people today are really conscious of the environment. 
you know, they're very future focused and potentially, you know, maybe even some of the ways we're not looking after the planet and things could contribute to that as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stephen. This has been absolutely brilliant. I've loved this. Oh, thank you for having us. And yeah, the one thing I'd say is if we've just actually launched our Coach to Cope Psychological First Aid online program through our website. So if there are any you know, families or, you know, the families want to tell their schools about it or uh, anything like that, we, um, you know, it, it will get, teach people that TAR3 psychological first aid framework and just give them a little bit of that framework where they can help any child at any time. And, you know, you can't predict the future, but in any moment, the parent or adult that that child needs in the moment. Fantastic. That information is available on the webpage that goes with this episode and it'll also be in the show notes as well. I'll put the link directly in the show notes because I think a lot of parents, talking for myself, we're floundering with what do we do? How can we support this? How can we support our friends' kids? You know, we're all just like a bit lost, really. Funny, um, just don't know what to do was one of the themes of thesis. You know, just don't know what to do. And the amount of times I've heard that in my own head, in um, you know, in you know, from my colleagues or from parents. And yeah, we really hope, as I said before, we hope TR three just allows the adult to understand what might be happening, ground themselves, and just you know, be able to. Um, get that outcome and connect with that child in the moment fantastic thank you so much thanks Stephen you're welcome thanks great to meet you and happy to do this again